And now, The Federal Drive with Tom Temin. Hello, and thanks for joining us on this Tuesday, February 14th, 2023, seven minutes past the hour. I'm Tom Temin. Our producers are Eric White and Peter Masurlian, our digital editors Daisy Thornton and Robert O'Shaughnessy. Coming up in this hour of The Federal Drive, why airport screening today is nothing like the days after 9-11. Plus, it's easy to log into Interior Department systems. Too easy. Those stories and much more ahead during this hour of The Federal Drive. But first, the National Industries for the Blind is out of options with the General Services Administration. NIB took the unusual and what it says unfortunate step to sue GSA over its commercial platforms initiative. In his weekly reporter's notebook, executive editor Jason Miller covers why NIB turned to this last resort option. Jason joins me now. And Jason, let's just take a step back here. The Commercial Platforms Initiative, what is it and what's the status of it by GSA? This is something that GSA kicked off in June 2020. They made three awards to Amazon Business, Fisher Scientific, and Overstock Government based on a provision in the 2018 Defense Authorization Bill to try to make buying of commercial products better, faster, cheaper, more like, quote-unquote, Amazon. For years, Tom, we called it the Amazon rule, Section 846 of that NDAA from 2018. And really, the goal here was twofold. One, make it easier, but also to capture better data around online spending. GSA at one point said this market was like $6 billion. They've actually come back off of that and said now it's about $500 million. Still a lot of money, but the goal here is to make it easier for agencies to use it. And if you look at the data from uh, earlier this year, GSA has shown that, that agencies are using it in In fact, when you look at the 2022 highlights, more than $40 million has been spent through these commercial platforms, 150,000 plus orders, uh, 26 different agencies are using it, 53,000 users, and now they're looking to expand it. All right. That's a lot of bobby pins so far for $40 million. And the National Industries for the Blind, just give us the uh, short version of what that organization is all about. Sure. Now, the National Industries for the Blind, they're a nonprofit organization that really works closely with the Ability One Commission, which is a independent federal agency, to help administer the Ability One program. What NIB does is really distributes federal government orders for products and services along a procurement list to folks who provide these products and services by hiring and employing people who are blind or or people who have sight challenges. This goes all the way back to the Javits-Wagner-O'Day Act from the 1930s, which really mandated the Ability One Commission provide this procurement list and provide that agencies are mandated to use this procurement list to buy these specific products and services. Now, generally speaking, Tom, this is something that every agency knows about. This is something that's been in procurement law for years. So that's where the rub comes in, this new RFP that GSA put out to expand the commercial platform initiative. All right. And so why is the NIB suing GSA over that platform? The NIB looked at the draft RFP that GSA put out last fall and said, hey, you're not meeting the mandate of the JWAD Act. We think you should change it. We think that because JWAD Act mandates all government agencies to purchase these products and services from the procurement list from the Ability One Commission, there are no exemptions to this unless if it's for you know a specific, a very specific need or very specific reason. The other thing is, Tom, there's also something called essentially the same, ETS as it's commonly known. Most of the time, GSA and other agencies prohibit the buying of essentially the same. So if a company that employs blind people are making pens, they can't go buy it from BIC, who doesn't necessarily fit under the Ability One Commission, is not on their list. They have to buy it from this company that buys these pens. Very simple example, but but a real one. What the GSA did was in their draft RFP and then eventually the final RFP, they did not mandate the use of, of Ability One Commission companies. And despite the National Industries for the Blind and others, and, and this also includes other organizations like the Association for Vision Rehabilitation and Employment and the National Association for Employment with People Who Are Blind, they said, hey, you have to require this. This is not a choice. This is a law. So they tried to get GSA to change the draft RFP. They even wrote to GSA Administrator Robin Carnahan and said, this is a problem. We need your help with it. And when the final RFP came out last December, they did not make those changes. In fact, they, Nib says to in, in the letter to Carnahan that the proof of concept that GSA started in 2020 was clear it was not complying with it. And they came sure. up with some quick statistics uh, just to drive home the point, Tom. Ability One purchases accounted for about 2 to 4% of total dollar value under GSA Advantage. 
about 9 to 10% of total value of sales under all of GSA's purchase vehicles. But the Ability One purchases were less than 1% of total value of this proof of concept of commercial platforms. And that is the rub here. They're not following the law. And, and basically what Nib said is we've done all we can to work with you. This is our last resort following this lawsuit. I don't know whether this is relevant, but on the Amazon site, you can buy through the Ability One store because I happen to love these things, those U.S. government skill craft pens, a dozen of them for 12 bucks, but it's through the Ability One store. So I don't know if that's relevant or not, but Amazon so, is selling them. You're absolutely right. What they're not doing, though, they're also selling, just to pick on BIC, they're also selling BIC pens. So you could do either. Right. And what things like 10,000 pens, yeah. Exactly. And what things like GSA Advantage does is something called block and sub. Hey, I'm going to go buy pens. Oh, BIC, nope, you can't do it. You must use this other one. And I think that's the key here, that they have not blocking and subbing. And I think that's that's the heart of the issue, among other things, with the lawsuit. And what is GSA's response at this point? So to their credit, GSA, I think, has listened or has tried to listen to uh, the, the complaints or the concerns about uh, from the National Industries for the Blind. And just February 8th put out a request for information asking folks, can we do something about the RFP? Can we put an amendment to the RFP? Can we do something to ensure that we're meeting the goals of the JWAD Act? And in fact, they've asked for feedback by February 23rd that says, hey, well, number one, do commercial, what commercial practices exist related to the making of these products that are Ability One items based on the list provided by the government? They talked about this block and substitute feature. Can that be used? Does it exist? Could we, could we make it exist? If so, how would it work? And then they also ask, you know, what, what are some of the commercial capabilities aside from block and substitute or blocking that could ensure the compliance with the Javits-Wagner-O'Day Act? So to GSA's credit, they are trying to, to change. Tom, I think this goes back to a bigger issue, though. Why did it take a lawsuit for GSA to put out this RFI when they were told at the very, you know, months ago with even a letter to Administrator Carnahan to, hey, this was a concern. This was a problem. Fix it. And I think this goes back to a bigger issue, not at GSA, but across government. When people highlight issues that are concerning and, and they're in procurement draft RFPs, how well do agencies understand it, listen to it, make changes, respond to those changes, explain why they did or didn't make the change? And, and I think if the GSA would have met with the National Institute for the Blind and, and had a conversation, they may have. I don't know. I right. have reached out to GSA. I've not heard back from them yet. But if they had those conversations, could they have fixed this without, again, going to this last resort of a lawsuit? It sounds like there's a change to the specific websites that would be needed to get buyers to the proper places to buy from the approved sources. Who does that, GSA? It would actually that be those commercial providers that would actually have to do it because GSA is just contracting with the Amazons, the Fisher Scientifics, the Overstock government. And that's why I think they're asking through this RFI, hey, can you do this already? Or what would it take to do this? Or is there a similar type of commercial capability that we just don't know about? You can call it block and substitute. You can call it something else. In other words, that's what, what this RFI is doing. They would want, say, a query coming from a .gov URL then to be directed to a certain place on Amazon and the others, as opposed to just being able to buy it alongside anything else they want to buy. Possibly, or even something like, hey, I'm going to go buy pens. And as you go to buy the pens, it says, no, it gets pushed to this Ability One Commission approved product provider who says, nope, you got to buy pens from this person. And it'll explain why based on, you know, the Javits Wagner O'Day Act, you must buy pens from these sets of providers. Interesting. So this one is up in the air at this point. It is. I think uh, there's no dates on hearings. There's, I think it's still very early in the process, you know, uh, uh, the National Industries for the Blind just filed their lawsuit February 2nd. The uh, bids for the commercial platforms initiatives were due February 3rd, so they got it in before the bids were due. So it's actually a solicitation-based protest versus a post-award protest. I think that there's still a lot to happen, and I think this RFI is a good signal from GSA that they do or, or they are listening. Again, Tom, it goes back to why did it have to get to the point of a lawsuit to get GSA to listen when they were told about this in September and October? Federal News Network's highly detailed Jason Miller. Thanks so much for that update. My pleasure, Tom. And be sure to check out his reporter's notebook now online at federalnewsnetwork.com. Still to come, it's easy to log on to Interior Department systems. Too easy. This is The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify. The global commerce platform that supercharges your selling 
wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Welcome back to The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Network. Easy passwords like password 1234, multiple people with the same password, inactive user accounts not closed, one-factor authentication. Sounds like the average agency cybersecurity posture of, say, 1989. But no, that's the Interior Department right now. We get the details from Interior Inspector General Mark Lee Greenblatt. Mr. Greenblatt, good to have you back. Thank you for having me on again. I appreciate your highlighting our work. And in this day and age when one might have presumed the password situation was cleaned up by agencies, what prompted you to look at Interior Department password policies and practices? Well, we have a robust IT audit team that has developed a strong track record of probing the Department of the Interior's infrastructure with respect to IT. And this particular review started with our efforts a couple of years ago to look at Wi-Fi networks and the ease with which we were able to crack into passwords related to the Wi-Fi networks in the department led us to think, hey, maybe there's a bigger problem with passwords here. And so we developed this mechanism to explore the password complexity requirements inside the department. And just briefly, to the extent that you can describe the methodology, how did you crack passwords and find out that people were using, in a widespread manner, pretty weak passwords? Well, this is a fascinating question, and I love that our team was able to come up with this, but this is what is really happening out in the world with malicious actors. So they replicated what hackers are trying to do. For less than $15,000, they put together a system that was specifically designed to crack password hashes. So what happens is when you and I put in a password, the system that we use tracks that as a 30 or more digit number. It's not the actual text that you and I put in. And our system was able to, they used commonly used words, they used dictionaries of different languages, they used U.S. government terminology, and put this all into this system, pop culture references as well. And then they were able to crack the hashes using all of these different words and different combinations. And and the algorithms that they used were pretty remarkable. Wow. And just give us a survey of the top line results. Because there are individual issues and then there are enterprise issues from the way I look at it. That's exactly right. So first of all, we cracked more than 18,000 passwords for user accounts in the department. There are about 70,000 department employees. And so we cracked 21% or so of the department employees' passwords. There were 288 accounts that we cracked. Their password were for elevated privileges, which means administrators. These are folks who can go behind the scenes into the systems. Those are really sensitive passwords there, as well as 362 senior government employee accounts. Uh, So that's some of the top line figures. But, you know, some of the other stuff that we were talking about before and what you used in your intro, we found that one in 21 passwords used the word password. In fact, the number one password that we found was password-1234, and there were nearly 500 accounts with that. And then in the top four, you also had password-123, dollar sign, password-1234. I mean, hundreds and hundreds of accounts like that. We also had in the top 10, password-1234, exclamation point. Uh, You know, you get my drift here. So we're seeing a lot of those same types of, you know, reliance on easy things, but that's exactly what the malicious actors want. That's one of the problems that we're trying to identify with this report. We're speaking with Mark Lee Greenblatt, Inspector General of the Interior Department. And did you look at what their policy is for passwords? They must have a better policy than perhaps the widespread practice. Well, that was something that was disconcerting is that 99.99% of the passwords that we hacked were compliant with the policy. So that's one of the big problems here that we found was that the password complexity requirements 
are no longer adequate. And this is where we get to the bigger, more systemic issues that you were flagging earlier, Tom, that we need to make more robust policy requirements. For example, this reliance on passwords that are incredibly complicated, where you have these symbols and they're impossible to remember, those are outdated. And we need to modernize. And the new best practice out in the field right now is using pass phrases. So this is four words, random words, say, that are combined. And there's a much greater difficulty for a hacker to read your mind about four random words in your brain as opposed to password one, two, three, four. And so that's where the modern best practices are gravitating toward. And that's what we're trying to urge the department to move toward past phrases, not passwords. And then there's the issue of more than one factor authentication to begin with. That's exactly right. That was another big problem that we found with respect to the department's policies here. We found that 89% of the high-value assets, these are the sensitive data sets and sensitive computer systems, had not implemented what's called multi-factor authentication. And this is what you're talking about, Tom. So there are two kinds. There's single-factor authentication and multi-factor authentication. And so we are trying to move the department and the rest of the federal government towards MFA, multi-factor authentication. What that is, is using at least two factors to access computer system. And there are basically three big buckets. One is something that the user knows, which is like a password or a PIN number, something that the user has, like a PIV card or a token, and something that the user is, like a biometric measure, which is like fingerprints or retinal patterns. And so a multi-factor authentication would use two or more of those buckets. Right now, using just passwords, we're seeing now is just not sufficient to protect these systems. And there's even newer ways for the backup types of questions and challenges because people can all put in, where were you born? Everyone can write in New York. But now a lot of agencies are using third-party data services that the individual is, whether they know it or not, is enrolled in. And therefore, if you were actually born in Podunk, the system knows that. So if you try to make your challenge question New York, it won't work. So it's kind of a living way of challenge questions. Certainly. That would add value if we can make these systems more complex and more robust because malicious actors are certainly dedicating more resources than we did. I mean, we put in $15,000, less than $15,000. There are other folks using much more sophisticated means, just as you're describing. And I imagine this might have been a triggering type of report to use a modern parlance for the Interior Department because there's a history there. I mean, within my memory of following the Interior Department, they have been under court-ordered data system shutdowns and internet disconnections at one time because of security practices. So what was the reaction? Well, we have a good, constructive, appropriate relationship with the department. They have taken this very seriously, along with our other reports. I am heartened. I had a specific conversation with the CIO, the chief information officer here. Very healthy, very constructive conversation with him and very senior leaders here in the department. I think they are taking this very seriously, uh, and I'm gratified by that. Ultimately, we are trying to help the department be more robust, and I think this response is going to uh, hopefully effectuate that and make the computer systems more robust, more resilient against uh, hacking attacks. So really then they're it at this point, the CIO staff and the tech staff to establish a new password policy. And is that something, do you feel that they can promulgate quickly and then within a couple of weeks everybody has to have new passwords or you can't get your work done? Yeah, well, that's a question for them in terms of timing, but I expect that they will be uh, moving quickly. The bigger issue, frankly, I think is probably not so much the password, but implementing the multi-factor authentication. That could take time because we have some systems here that are older and that can't do that sort of thing very easily. Again, this is a question for the CIO and senior leadership, but I think you know their hearts and minds are in the right place trying to solve this system. But I don't want to speak for them in terms of their planning and, and how they're going to attack it. But my sense is, from my conversations with them, that they are moving, you know, hopefully moving in the right direction. I think that clicking sound I hear is a technology modernization fund application. <laughs> That's right. One way to get there <laughs> yeah, a little bit I quicker. So. And by the way, do you have the sense that this could be something government-wide? Absolutely. 
the Department of the Interior employees, I think, are very similar to other federal government employees in the sense of how they're using the passwords in their daily lives. I think they're no different from the rest of the federal government. And in fact, I would argue this is very similar to the rest of our society. And so I think this is tapping into a larger issue, not only in the federal government, but in our society. We have to change the way we view passwords and shift away from these crazy concoctions that we have with the word password and these special characters, which are absolutely impossible to remember, and shift into pass phrases. That really is the societal shift that we need, and that includes the federal government as well, to answer your question. But I think it's actually much bigger than just the government itself. All right. Mark Lee Greenblatt is Inspector General of the Interior Department. As always, thanks so much for joining me. Thank you very much, Tom. Appreciate your support. And we'll post this interview along with a link to his report at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on demand. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Still to come, contractors eye a report about contract management by the GSA IG. But first, why airport screening today is nothing like the days right after 9-11. This is the Federal Drive with Tom Tamman here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Welcome back to The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Network. In a plain-looking warehouse at the end of an out-of-the-way Atlantic City airport, that's where you'll find one of the nation's most important research labs. It's operated by the Homeland Security Department's Science and Technology Directorate. Its purpose is to test, validate, and even help develop the screening technologies for keeping air travel safe. I recently spent a day at the Transportation Security Lab, or TSL. Today, we start a series of interviews with lab leadership, starting with its director, Dr. Christopher Smith. He explained why the lab is part of the Science and Technology Directorate and not the Transportation Security Administration. Well, Department of Homeland Security consists of a lot of different organizations, and those organizations have needs which might be somewhat similar to TSA's needs, and the department felt it was best to consolidate the technology under one roof rather than have the components develop perhaps similar technologies which might waste taxpayers' dollars with the redundant development efforts. And there's also the issue of accountability and cross-referencing of people's work such that people don't get, I guess, maybe lured by their own technology or their own discoveries. That is quite correct. We are the authorized test agent for TSA, but we are, in some senses, independent of TSA. Yes, we both belong to DHS, but I do not have a reporting chain to Admiral Pekoski of TSA. So we're independent, and TSA benefits from that independence. The flying public can be quite certain that when TSA fields a device, that it has gone through third-party scrutiny. Sure. And you have really a combination of science, engineering, testing and evaluation, chemistry. Lots of things happen here. Maybe just give us the brief overview of how it's organized and what the activities are. Well, we've gone from a relatively simple problem of detecting commercial explosives, military explosives inside of checked bags to a whole host of threats that we need to contend with. The suicide bomber either wearing a explosive threat or carrying that threat on their person onto the aircraft, perhaps putting it in their shoes or their underwear, as we have seen. These threats are not just commercial or military explosives. They are homemade explosives, which is a challenge that we have risen to, but not the same as detecting conventional explosives. A lot of science that needs to go into the understanding of those homemade explosives so that we can know how they will respond to the detection technologies and make sure those technologies are tuned to those witches' brews. Sure, and beyond the chemistry and the physics of all of this, it's increasingly sounds like a data-driven, data-intensive, algorithmic activity. 
as threats multiply and the need for accuracy just keeps seeming to grow. That is quite correct, especially the imaging technologies. They produce some very precise images of threats in bags or on persons. Sometimes an image can be a gigabyte in size, and we need to take thousands of those images to test the efficacy of those systems. In the case of the new algorithms that are incorporating machine learning, we need to test sometimes tens of thousands of images. So very data-intensive, very computationally intensive. So there's a bunch of parties in this chain. There's the flying public, there's TSA, there's the TSL. There's also industry, which translates a lot of the research and development that you do here into the products that actually work on the front lines at mostly airports. Right. And so you have an interesting relationship with industry in the sense of getting it to where what it builds for you is deployable in an industrial-grade setting that is the modern airport. Well, before I talk about industry, let's not forget the uh, national labs. PNNL has uh, developed several technologies for us. Some of those technologies are already deployed in airports. They're developing next-generation technology, which we should see in the coming years. But PNNL or TSL, or TSA is not going to build and deploy their own systems. We are going to rely on private industry to engineer and develop those systems, and we are close partners with them. When those systems developers, those vendors as we like to call them, have a technology which they think is near ready for deployment to TSA, they will bring it to our Developmental Test and Evaluation Division, who will assist the vendor in tuning that technology to the particular threats of interest to TSA. Once our engineers and scientists and the vendor agree that that technology is ready for independent test and evaluation, we will transition that technology over to our IT&E organization, which is TSA's authorized test agent. The Independent Test and Evaluation Organization will test that technology to TSA's requirements and will report out to TSA whether or not that technology meets their requirements and can be acquired. I guess also at the top of mind is the experience and efficacy of the TSOs themselves, the people on the front line at TSA, transportation security officers, and what you do changes their work a lot. So how does that figure into the equation? First, let me say that the TSOs do a fantastic job. The amount of things that they can detect is absolutely amazing. But what we'd really like to do with the technology is to relieve the TSO of those tasks which are subject to fatigue and turn that over to computers if those computers, if those uh, algorithms can do a better job. It's already the case that facial recognition algorithms, for example, can do a better job of picking out a face than humans can do. The same may hold true for threats concealed in bags, and if that is the case, we would like to get those machine learning algorithms performing that function and then alerting the TSO when there is an alarm to resolve, because humans are very good at resolving alarms. TSOs are very good at resolving alarms. So you've got a lot of axes to operate in because there is the need for absolute security because it only takes one explosive to get through to bring down a plane or some horrible thing like that to happen. And yet you can't make the flying public crazy such that it takes three hours every time you go to the airport to get through a line. And to date, TSA has been pretty good at getting it better for passengers. Oh, yeah. We haven't had any bad incidents. Some have been prevented. Is that a good way to describe it? It seems like you have a multi-axis mission here. Well, you're asking about TSA, and I would direct your questions on that to TSA. But in general, yes, what we are trying to do is we are trying to constantly improve the detection of threats, both the ones that we anticipate and the emerging threats of the future. We're looking to reduce false alarms to make it more convenient for passengers to get through that checkpoint. And if we can do that all on the cheap and reduce costs, that would be a great thing too. But it's not exactly a TSA question. Like we went through your lab where they are developing techniques 
to be able to understand what's in bottles and containers, whether it's something that's allowable or something not, spectroscopy, lots of different sciences there. And here again, that's your task to come up with that detection methodology and then turn it into an industrial reality. So you've got the accuracy piece. There's a lot of new science happening there. And there's also ultimately the customer experience of the flying public. So I think it is a TSL question that there's this multifaceted mission that you need to meet online. There is a multifaceted mission. We started this interview by discussing our relationship with TSA. I mentioned that we are independent of TSA, but they are very much our customer, and we will be very responsive to their requirements, to their concerns. We don't invent that ourselves. That is something that is determined by TSA and delivered to us. Now, quite often they'll come to us and ask for our advice, but it is TSA which is calling the shots on the requirements and on the types of technologies that they'll need in the airport environment. It is TSL's responsibility then to turn their vision into a reality by testing what comes to us from the vendors. Now, ultimately, the end products are acquired by TSA, but you have a role with industry that is beyond the big, well-known companies that make that equipment with their names slapped on the side that we see at the airports. And there's a lot of innovators, a lot of people thinking in small companies or non-traditional vendors, and you have a mechanism for bringing their technologies in to see if they can be brought to that level of meeting a TSA requirement. That is quite right. We deal with the big firms. We deal with some systems developers who might be out of academia, might be within the national lab infrastructure. And increasingly, when we're speaking about the brains of these systems, the software, the algorithms, we're talking about some mom-and-pop type operations out there. A lot of the automatic target recognition algorithms are developed by very bright individuals or small organizations out there, and we want to take advantage of their innovative capabilities. And maybe discuss the international angle of this, because air security, just like air traffic control, those are international activities. We very much work internationally, both with international firms. Much of the technology in our laboratory is produced by international companies. We work with international governments, friendly governments. We have an interest in supporting their ability to detect threats on their aircraft, especially those at airports which might be the last point of departure for destinations in the United States. So, yeah, we're very much interested in working with them and harmonizing our requirements with them, especially the Europeans, because that would make their job a lot easier and our job a lot easier. But for further information on that, I am going to direct you to TSA. All right. And getting back to the TSL, you have a lot of disciplines and a lot of skills and sciences operating here. Can you run them down for us? Well, the test and evaluation teams are, for the most part, engineers, technical professionals, and folks who have experience with the design of experiments. But before we can actually test a system, we need to develop that test. The development of that test requires scientific expertise scientific expertise to develop procedures, scientific expertise to develop test tools, scientific expertise to develop the materials that we might use during test and evaluation. So we have a robust applied research division, which is populated by a bunch of very bright chemists and physicists. Yeah. And what about computational science? Because there seems to be a lot of computational artificial intelligence, machine learning being brought to bear on the data produced by the physical processes. Exactly. We're in the process now of hiring a machine learning expert here for TSL. We could try to treat these algorithms as black boxes, but that would result in very inefficient test and evaluation regime. Instead, what we need is the data analyst, the computer science, to be able to look under the hood of those machine learning algorithms and help us explore the vulnerabilities and capabilities of those algorithms. And that does require a certain amount of expertise in machine machine learning, in statistics, and uh, linear algebra, all of those fields which go into understanding machine learning. Are there any grand design challenges, any ultimate challenges that you feel the lab has? 
Well, we can talk about a couple of them. Uh, The systems for passenger inspection will identify any foreign object on your body and will ask you to take that object off and put it through the x-ray machine, or a TSO will otherwise inspect that object to make sure that it's not a threat. Ideally, where we would like to get with those passenger inspection systems is to be able to have the system itself make a determination on the nature of that foreign object on your body. Is it a threat or is it benign? And we've got scientists working on that right now in our laboratory. I'm old enough to remember when you flew, you got to the airport and walked on the plane. You gave somebody a paper ticket and walked on the plane. Me too. Then magnetometers came in. Is the vision someday we'll go back to walking right on the plane, only somewhere there's going to be a scanning apparatus. You might not even see it or be aware of it, but it'll flag you if you don't belong and somebody will say, excuse me, sir, go over there. Otherwise, the other 147 people walk right on. People jokingly refer to the checkpoint of the future as the, what what was that movie, the um, Arnold Schwarzenegger um, total recall system where he is uh, inspected as he's walking. You see the image of his skeleton as he's walking down the hallway. I think that that is not what TSA is striving for, and passengers will probably always notice the checkpoint, but hopefully that checkpoint will have shorter lines. There will be less divestiture. There will be less of a need for secondary inspections, uh, lower false alarm rates with all of these systems, just a whole lot faster and a whole lot more convenient for passengers and a whole lot more efficient for TSA. Dr. Christopher Smith, director of the Transportation Security Lab, part of the Homeland Security Science and Technology Directorate. There's much more to the interview. Hear it in its entirety at federalnewsnetwork.com. Tomorrow, we hear from the director of the Independent Test and Evaluation Division. Fly the Federal Drive wherever you go. Subscribe to the podcast wherever you get your shows. Still to come, contractors eye a report about contract management by the GSA's Inspector General. This is the Federal Drive with Tom Tamman here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Wyndham. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. Welcome back to The Federal Drive with Tom Tamman here on Federal News Network. The General Services Administration's Inspector General has found that the agency's Federal Acquisition Service doesn't follow its own policies. Some contractors say they've sensed that for a while now. Analysis from Federal Sales and Marketing Consultant Larry Allen. And this is kind of a tough one. And I guess the GSA's IG has a history of being tough on that agency. But they found that, in particular, which policies do they not follow at FAS? Tom, the IG does have a history of passing its own judgment on the operations of the rest of the General Services Administration. Sometimes industry kind of takes a jaundiced view, maybe, of what the IG says. But in this case, I think the Inspector General got it exactly right. What we're talking about here specifically is a report that the IG did on performance-based contracting, where they found that GSA has an internal policy to properly administer and manage contracts. But that the GSA Federal Acquisition Service does not always follow that policy. Now, to people who look at the General Services Administration, particularly the Federal Acquisition Service with the same degree that I do, we all can maybe get a little bit of a laugh out of this, an improper laugh, but a little bit of a laugh nonetheless, because, oh, really? So, because, you know, the fact is that There's plenty of anecdotal evidence to support what the IG found on performance-based contracting in terms of other GSA policies, Tom. Probably the most recent example of that is where the General Services Administration acquisition policy people put out two sets of guidance intended to make it easier for contractors to get price increases on their schedule contracts as a result of inflationary pressures. And the idea was you don't give contractors free reign to raise their prices, but 
you do acknowledge that inflation has had an impact, an unusual impact this year, and that flexibility is required. That was great. Unfortunately, the way it was implemented was very uneven. Some companies had an extremely difficult time of getting price increases. Some companies just plain weren't able to get a price increase and ended up having to take items off their scheduled contracts or lose money on every sale. So that's just another example. You have the policy, which is well-intended, and the practice, which is somewhat disconnected from it. And you're saying that contractors have felt this has been the case all along? Well, I think it has been the case all along, but it varies in in degrees, Tom. You know, I can give another example, one that's been around for a while, again, with the uh, multiple award schedules program, where the GSA objective is to obtain a contractor's most favored customer price. That's been the objective since longer than I've been involved with the schedules program. Most contracting officers and contract specialists understand that even if you don't reach the objective, if you can determine that you've received a fair and reasonable price, you make a contract award. Something that started several years ago and has kind of intensified lately is if you don't offer the best price, you're likely not going to get a contract. And that's particularly being applied to small businesses. Small businesses that need to have a little extra so that they can conduct their business and thrive on the program. Yet contracting specialists and to some extent contracting officers looked at the pricing and said, no, if this isn't the best price, you're not going to be awarded a contract, which results in companies either not getting a contract or worse, they get a contract uh, with a price that they can't possibly Sure. Survive on. And we should point out, getting back to the issue with the IG's report in particular about performance-based contracting and not following the rules in administering them, the GSA agreed with the findings of the IG and will presumably go on with its recommendations. We're speaking with Larry Allen. He's president of Allen Federal Business Partners. And ironically to the GSA IG report, you're also advising clients about the recent Justice Department report that False Claims Act key TAM settlements are up a lot. So companies have to be on their P's and Q's or a whistleblower will point them out and it'll cost them money. Tom, this is absolutely prima facie evidence that contractors need to take contract compliance seriously. Look, as you said, 652 key TAM resolutions during uh, fiscal year 2022, that's near or at an all-time high for whistleblower actions. And there were not, aside from that, Tom, there were another significant number of False Claims Act cases bought by IGs and auditors in addition to these whistleblower cases. All of that amounts to contractors needing to remember that it's not just the sales, it's how you manage and comply with the contract that counts. And while the total dollar numbers were covered in False Claims Act cases dipped a little bit, What we're talking about a dipping to, Tom, is $2.2 billion. And on top of that, every one of these cases had significant legal fees. Very frequently, they had fees for expert witnesses or forensic accountants, uh, not to mention lost productivity and potentially even the loss of a productive one or two employees who get caught up in the compliance effort. It's not worth it, Tom. It's absolutely pennies on the dollar for a company to put compliance programs in place. And when you've got this type of whistleblower activity, it just makes sense. And also maybe communicate to your employees, if you see something that needs fixing, let us know and we'll fix it. That's kind of a baseline part, Tom. You're absolutely right. If you're one of these companies, if you're a company, you have to have a way for employees to register their concerns, to have a complaint box, if you will, and do it in a way that there's absolutely no employee retaliation for that effort. Frequently, we see key TAM cases filed by disgruntled either current or former employees, people who did find something wrong. They tried to point it out inside the company before they went outside. The company either didn't listen or worse, took retaliatory action against that person. And it's a very short walk from there to a plaintiff's bar lawyer who is happy 
to take your key TAM case. And now the company has a problem that it didn't need to have. Larry Allen is president of Allen Federal Business Partners. As always, thanks so much. Tom, thank you. And I wish your listeners happy selling. We'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on demand. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Quantum computing is coming ever closer to real-life use, and the Defense Department wants to be ready. The Defense Advanced Research Projects Agency has contracted with three companies to build quantum computers. The prototypes should take about three years. Federal News Network's Alexandra Lohr got more from DARPA Program Manager Dr. Joe Altapeter. It turns out that not all quantum computers are created equal. They're they're very different from each other. I think the kinds of quantum computers that we're interested in uh, in this US2QC program, which I think is the, the one you're interested in, are really, they're called fault-tolerant quantum computers. So a lot of the quantum computers, that all of the quantum computers that I'm aware of that have been built to date are called noisy intermediate scale quantum computers. Basically, they, they can, they're phenomenally intricate, impressive feats of science and technology, but they, they do these operations on individual qubits, which are kind of, if, I, if you think about a classical computer, it's a zero or a one, it's a yes or a no. A quantum bit is yes or a no and a whole bunch of flavors of maybe. And you kind of get them to do this dance together in this symphony of a computation, uh, and they can, can figure out things that classical computers can't. When it's these noisy intermediate scale quantum computers, it's like the symphony kind of loses the thread. It's like there's no conductor to keep everybody on on beat. And after you play, uh, you know, a few measures of the music, all the instruments are all out of tune. There's no, uh, you know, coherence. There's too much dissonance in the, the music. You can't understand what they're trying to play anymore. The idea of making a fault tolerant quantum computer is somehow or another, you have a conductor there who's keeping everybody on beat and you can have, you can play for as long as you want. You can still figure out what the uh, musical piece is supposed to be. An- another way of saying it is you combine a bunch of these noisy qubits together, have them all work together. Uh, so you might have a hundred or a thousand of these noisy qubits work together to collectively create one kind of noise-free computational grade, what we call fault-tolerant qubit. And th- those are the kinds of machines we're interested in. What kind of time frames are you looking at as you talk to the three companies that you've decided to work with? I saw five years, but it looked like you had a 10-year time frame too. How's that all going to play out? The program is notionally five years long, but we're very flexible about that. One of the reasons we started this program was to have a vehicle where we could flexibly work with companies who had a real shot at getting to a what we call utility scale, a no kidding, really useful, really big quantum computer. And so I think that timeline is our timeline to try to verify and validate what they're doing. I think this 10-year timeline is, like I said, we're flexible. We don't have hard dates. But ideally, we take five years to get a really good look at what they're doing, look under the hood, kick the tires. And at the end of five years, we'd be able to say that, okay, yeah, if we wanted to really build one of these giant, useful quantum computers, we think that it would work and that that process would take less than another five years. We don't have hard hard requirements on either of those dates. The real reason we're doing this is to try to figure out if a company or a university thinks that they have a surprising path to a no kidding, really big, useful quantum computer, we want to come in and work with you and see if uh, that, that approach holds water. Because this, this field has a lot of hype. And just because somebody says they're going to have a revolutionary quantum computer in eight years or 10 years or 15 years... Um, that's not enough reason to be sure that's going to happen. You really want to go in and take a really skeptical, rigorous look and and see who has a a viable approach and who doesn't. So I assume you've talked to these three companies a little bit now. How optimistic are you? So we just kicked off last month. We had our first big meetings last week. And I think one of the things you'll discover about DARPA, if we talk more as this program goes on, is we are really skeptical and rigorous and by the book. And so I basically have nothing to say about how optimistic I am about their approach. I can say that at this point, other than they have really exciting approaches. They, they each have something about their, their approach that nobody else is doing that I think is really worth taking a careful look to see is there or there or there. So I'm incredibly exciting. I'm incredibly excited. I'm optimistic, which was your question, but I'm, I'm optimistic by nature. But that's very different from saying... DERPA thinks this is going to work. 
Um, so can you offer me any specifics on what new exciting things they have, or, or is that not something you can get into? I can, yeah, sure. Absolutely. I can talk about that. I think five years ago, if you had asked somebody, will these approaches, photonic quantum computers, uh, neutral atom quantum computers, or topological superconductors, be a viable approach to make a really big, really useful quantum computer, you would have gotten a lot of skepticism from your random quantum physicist you stopped on the street. And I think that there's good reasons for all of these approaches now to have a lot more optimism to say that some things about this seem crazy, but you know, some things about this seem really good. This, this might really give us something we can't have from a different approach. Those things, I think, if we take them one at a time, because they're all totally different approaches. They're apples and oranges. The photonic approach, which is the approach from psi-quantum, photons are interesting. They have, a, they have some things that are great in that they don't really talk to the world. They, they kind of photons are the tiniest piece of light you can get. They fly off and they do their own thing, and they're largely unaffected by whatever they're flying through, electric, magnetic fields, whatever which is great because the outside world poking at a quantum computer with electric and magnetic fields is where things go sideways, as you said. So that's really attractive that you have something that can't be pushed off the rails by the outside world. Problem is photons also don't talk to each other. They ignore each other as much as they ignore the outside world, which if you want a computer to have gates that are, say, the state of one photon affects what happens with another photon, that's as big of a disadvantage as the first one was an advantage. And so you really need some very creative ways if you're going to make this work to overcome that seemingly significant obstacle. And how about the other two companies that you're working with? So the next one is Microsoft. So they have this topological superconducting approach. This has gotten this general approach has gotten a lot of bad press recently with some you know, uh, people saying that certain, you know, uh, experimental demonstrations didn't work. But then Microsoft has had a bunch of announcements that they've made great progress. I think the short answer is, if they can make this work, this is a way to get individual superconducting qubits that are much lower noise through a really exotic uh, and beautiful piece of physics called topological protection that's really difficult to explain without jargon. And we want to go in and see if that works. And we, we have nothing to announce yet other than we're really excited to see if this will work. And then the last one, atom computing uses neutral atoms. Um, you've probably read about ion trap quantum computers where they use the charge of a single atom to kind of confine it and play with it and get it to do quantum stuff. A neutral atom you trap with lasers, but it doesn't have a charge. I think 10 years ago, these didn't work very well. There was a lot of skepticism. You'd ever be able to get them bigger and bigger. Several companies and universities have announced results just in the past few years, including some companies that are funded by the Honest program at DARPA that are making people take a hard second look about maybe this is a, a really quickly scaling approach that we disregarded too quickly a while ago. And so I think for, for completely different reasons, we're really excited about all three approaches we're looking at. In terms of practical applications for the Department of Defense, talk to me a little bit about that. So this is one of my two programs about this uh, US2QC about is there a hardware path to make this work? Uh, another program I have called the Quantum Benchmarking Program is focused on exactly that question that you're asking. Um, and I think we're, we're skeptical about both of those problems and are dealing with them mostly separately. Dr. Joe Altapeter, Program Manager at DARPA, speaking with Federal News Network's Alexandra Lohr. Check out Alex's story at federalnewsnetwork.com. 57 past the hour. This is the Federal Drive with Tom Tammen. For the latest updates, stay with federalnewsnetwork.com or follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. Up next, the top national headlines from CBS News and the Federal Newscast. I'm Tom Tammen.